Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our city campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. We do have uh, in our mind an image of what a classic father looks like. And uh, I don't know about you, but I grew up in the age of sitcoms. I know they're still there, but you know, the, the, age, the age I think has passed where, you know, around dinner time during the week, there'd be a, on every channel, on the four channels that were available, there'd be sitcoms. And in these sitcoms, they would be uh, different, it would be based around the home. You know, all the, you know, these shows and sitcoms and the characters would develop over, over each night as you watched and there would be the different uh, parts and the, the uh, per, uh, people within the family unit and the father was always part of that. And I think you could think back, you probably think to your own childhood of watching sitcoms and shows and having those fathers who became the classic fathers. For me... Um, and, I, you know, there's, there's, there's many that we could choose from, but I remember growing up, I was forced, I need to say this, I was forced to watch Little House on the Prairie um, way, way back. Anyone, anyone ever watched Little House on the Prairie? A whole bunch of you going back to, oh, and Charles, Charles Ingalls, who was the, uh, was the father. Good, wholesome show. He was the stable person, patient, secure, sometimes firm uh, father leading, uh, leading his family uh, out in the Midwest of America. Then you had the break, I, I watched, the Brady Bunch. Maybe I'm showing my age now, uh, but Mike Brady, the two families fused together again. Mike was a, he seemed to be a good uh, father and family role model. Let me skip ahead a little bit more. Again, I'm missing a whole bunch, but these are the ones that I remember. Ray Romano from Everyone Loves Raymond. Anyone watch that? And uh, a little bit more of a uh, detached, uh, kind of sarcastic, cynical kind of dad. Um, and then, then this is probably not real life, but I do remember because this was always on telly. Still is. Homer Simpson uh, from The Simpsons. Again, just the stupid, dumb kind of dad, the stereotypical dad of that time of the 90s uh, into today. You know, we've got all these images. Maybe you're thinking right now of those father images from media. And often that's what we see. You know, we've got these father-type images that get played back to us through the screen. And often, they're dysfunctional. We look at these classic fathers, and they're broken, and, and, and they're, uh, they're faulty, and uh, they've got their, their, their issues. Um, and, and there are, the reality is, is that, and we know this, is that the role of the father today is much maligned. You know, there, there is this picture of, of, of a detached, I think, like many fathers in, in, in on the screen today, detached, uh, broken fathers. And in fact, psychologists have this, this word of the impact of broken fathers and, and what they have on, on us as, as children, and, and that's the father wound. So maybe you've heard that before, that, that many of us uh, carry the residual of a father wound that comes from a, a detached father, a, a father who is unengaged both emotionally and physically. And psychologists say that when they speak about this father wound, they see that the impact uh, is, can be devastating. It damages uh, confidence. It uh, leaves emotional wounds that can damage uh, self-image. 
You know, fathers' actions can affect adult relationships and, and cause people to, to struggle to connect in intimate and vulnerable ways. You know, statistics um, just uh, from, a, from a fatherhood.org research in the US just from a couple of years ago found some, some pretty devastating numbers about absent fathers and, and how it plays out. Uh, some of the research they found, children without fathers are four times more likely to live in poverty. You know, children without fathers are more likely to suffer emotional and behavioral issues. Um, children without fathers uh, have higher levels of aggressive behavior and are more likely to go to prison. You know, it's interesting that one, this is, this is a tragic um, one, only one in five inmates grew up with a present father. You know, it's, 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 it feels really stark. I think it highlights a couple of things that we just need to acknowledge today. Firstly, we need to acknowledge that the role of fathers is powerful. You know, there's real power, there's a real importance in fatherhood. There's a power in fatherhood. But it also highlights the fact that there's a problem with fatherhood. And I want to say, and Hannah said this a little bit earlier, but the reality is right now as we're sitting here, many of us will carry a father wound. It's not uncommon or unusual. And maybe as you sit here today, you're going, you know what? The relationship with my dad is like that. I carry that wound. Or maybe you're here as a father and going, oh my goodness, there are things that I am doing, or I've done with my children. I, I, I have regret. I wish that I'd done things differently. And maybe you're, you're sitting here and, and you're going, man, I just, I just wish I was a father. There's a whole range of emotions, that, but we do recognize, and I think it's important to state, that fathers, the role of fathers are important. And as much as there is pain around fatherhood, we need to speak life and hope. And there is life and hope. Why? Because there is a better father. There is another father. There is a true father. God, our father, our loving father, gives us hope and gives us a new focus and a new way to find hope and healing. Now, over the last couple of months, we've been uh, going through the book of Ephesians. And uh, we finished a few weeks ago, journeying through uh, the book of Ephesians. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. This church is figuring out how to be the people of God in the context of the city of Ephesus, in the culture of Ephesus that was uh, ha ha putting great pressure on the church. And Paul writes to the church and he says, your identity is not in the city of Ephesus, your identity is is in Christ. And Paul says to the church in Ephesus, he says, when you get your identity right, everything flows from it. So understand who you are. And as, as we are unpacked, our identity is ultimately found in Christ. We journey through, let me remind you, that this wonderful truth that we are chosen, that we're loved, we're saved, that we are family. And in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, Paul 
makes this amazing leap and it says that our identity, when we walk in our identity, we're actually walking in the identity of God, our loving Father. Let me read um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, um, following. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus, remember saying, you are in Christ. You are a different kind of person. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Let me hit pause there for a moment. What Paul is saying is that there is a God, a God who is our Father. He says that we are his dearly beloved children. So if we are God's children, then we are, then he is our Father. And Paul goes on to say, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here we see following God's example, God has loved us. He's loved us so much that he sacrificed for us. So we can see if if we're invited to walk in the way of God, we are to walk in the way of love. And we also see that we are to walk in the way of presence. See, God presenced himself amongst us. Remember, we've just been talking about the problem with fatherhood today is fathers are absent. Fathers are gone. And so often we see God the Father in the same way. Now, I've just been reflecting uh, on, this, on this. I think it's true for many people that both inside and outside the church that we're happy to talk about Jesus. We're happy to talk about Jesus because Jesus is the one who came down. He's the one who walked amongst us. He healed. He, he got down and dirty. He died for us. Oh, Jesus, we can talk about Jesus. He's cool. But God the Father, and uh, he's, he's that, that, that guy in the sky with the gray beard judging everybody smiting everybody. I'm happy to talk about Jesus, but God the Father, I'm not so sure about. And what Paul is saying and what Jesus says is, no, 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 you cannot separate the character of God. Jesus says in John chapter 14, this he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you, had no, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says, as he's answering the disciples who are wanting to see the Father, Philip goes on, will you show us the Father? And Jesus says, Philip, you don't get it. You have seen the Father You do know the Father because you see him in me. So when we think of the Father, we see the Father through the lens of Jesus who is God revealed to us in human form. And so the characteristics of Jesus we also see in God the Father. God the Father is one who loves us. Yes, he is great, creator, almighty, above all judge, defender of the wicked, the widow and the poor. He's also the God who came and sacrificed for us. When we see God, when we see Jesus, 
we see the character of the Father. And so we are invited to call him Dad. Jesus teaches the disciples. With this in mind, he says, and this, this would have been profound for the disciples. They come to Jesus. We read this in, in Matthew and Luke. The disciples come to Jesus and say, will, will, you, will you teach us, Jesus, how to pray? We, we, we watch you pray. We'd like to pray the same way. And Jesus says, when you pray, you say this, our daddy, our daddy, our Abba. Now the disciples had never even, this, this would have blown their mind. They saw God as a God of rules, a God of religion, systems and process and structure. And here Jesus invites the disciples. He says, you know, you want to know how to pray? You start by coming to your daddy, God. Their brains are just going, are you kidding me? We can, we can talk to God in intimate ways. She says, that's how you pray. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And our hearts connect when we cry out in the Spirit, Abba, Father. We're invited into an intimate relationship. This is our God a God of intimacy, a God of love. This is the true image. In the midst of all the other images that we have seen and experienced, from our own dad to those on screens, this is the true picture of a classic father. This is the classic father. And so Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, okay, so we're called to look at God who he loves us, has shown us his character through his son, Jesus Christ. And we are called to go and follow in his ways, follow his example, walk in his ways, Paul says. And if we track with Paul, then again, our identity is in him. We're being changed by him. We are free. We're set free. We're chosen. We're loved. We're saved. We're family. We're in him. What does it look like then to live in the way of God? And in Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to sit in one verse. Paul speaks specifically to fathers. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says this. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So I'm just going to really sit in, sit in this verse for a few moments. I'm going to speak to dads, but I want everybody else leaning in, okay? Because there are principles here for us all to grab hold of. Firstly, Paul says, do not exasperate your children. Or as another uh, translation says, do not provoke your children to anger. Now I need to say, as a father, that exasperation is not embarrassment, Fathers are absolutely allowed to embarrass their children. It's actually part of their commission and call in life. And I appreciate the jokes that were shared. And I, I just want, I, I think they were a little bit too schmick. To be honest, I think the jokes today, they were too good. They need to be worse than that. I think the worse the joke, the better. And I take great delight in finding bad jokes for our kids. I, I, we need to know, we need to acknowledge that exasperating is not embarrassing. You know, I remember my dad 
used to embarrass me when we would go. I was only reminded of this today during worship. I don't know if any of you, uh, anyone else had a dad that would come to church and stand in the, in the pew, open up the hymn book and sing at the loudest possible volume he could manufacture. It was so embarrassing. You know, you've seen the Mr. Bean kind of skit where he sings hallelujah. Yeah, yeah, that's my dad. And it's, I just, like, it was just, I hated standing next to dad because he would just sing so loud. And I realised today, that I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> That's why I stand there and all our kids stand over here, if you've noticed. At least I know the words, and uh, at least I know how to sing in the right most of the time. You have to ask the worship leaders, they may go, Andrew, you're, you're, just, you're embarrassing. <laughs> embarrassing is okay. It's actually a God-given right and call on the Father. Exasperation, though, that's different. What does exasperation mean? Exasperation means to irritate and frustrate intensely. I I, I grab hold of that word frustration. You want to to drive your kids to anger? Frustrate them. When I think of frustration, I also think of vision. So when I talk to young leaders who are frustrated, I actually am encouraged with that because it tells me that they've got a vision. It means that they can see something that has not yet been achieved. They want to see a change. They want to see something different, but they don't know how to do it. And I think in the same way with kids, if we do not guide them, if we don't help them, if we don't lift them up, if we don't help them see the journey that they're on, if we don't get on their vision and help them see, then we will frustrate them. See, fathers will frustrate their kids if they limit them, if they fail to, if they, they fail to provide clarity, instruction. And often, doesn't matter what age your kid is, if, if there is that frustration, they will see a glass ceiling and they won't know what to do with their vision. Detached fathers, fathers who don't know the heart of their child will frustrate their children. And Paul understands this. So the antidote to exasperation for Paul is training and teaching. It's training and teaching. That is the key journey. Training. Another word that you can use is discipline. It's the root word for discipleship. It's training. Training provides clear boundaries. Training says, this is what you need to do. This is, the, this is the field that you get to play in. This is the parameters of what life looks like if you want to flourish, if you want to grow, if you want to make a difference in your life, if you want to work out what you want to do. Clarity also creates safety. You train children not to run across the road. You train kids to, to, to act in safe ways in order that their life will flourish and grow. But in the, in, the, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, discipline and training is actually evidence of love. The writer says, if, if you are not disciplined by God your Father, even though it is painful for a season, it is evidence of his love for you. For what father does not discipline their child? 
Discipline, training is actually part of helping your child not get exasperated. It's guiding them and helping them see what flourishing looks like. But discipline, training takes effort. It takes work. It's not easy. It's not easy. And so I think for, for us fathers, and I'd say parents, we, we often fail to do discipline well. Some of us have a tendency to over-discipline. And I think this comes out of a desire for control. We want our kids to be perfect. They need to perform. They need to do everything correct. And, and it actually comes from our own sense of control. And on the other side, some of us have a tendency to under-discipline because there's a fear attached, maybe because of things that have been done to us and we react. Maybe there's hurt, there's burdens. Ultimately, it's because we don't want our kids to reject us or it's too hard work or there are things going on in our own hearts. And this is where we as parents and as fathers, we need to do the internal journey of our own heart. We need to figure out our own identity the best way that we can love and parent our kids is if we are able to actually work through our own issues, our own father wounds. Come to a place of receiving the love of God so that we can walk in his ways. Richard Raw says, if we do not transform our pain, we most assuredly transmit it. If we don't transform our pain, we will transmit it. We are to discipline and train and secondly, Paul says that we're to teach, we're to instruct. The reality is that someone is instructing your kids. Our, our emerging generation, I say this to everyone, our emerging generations are being taught. The question is, who is teaching them? Because there's no limit to the teachers out there. Teaching our kids about faith, Purpose, sex, identity. Who is it? Is it friends? Is it Google? Is it YouTube? Is it social media influencers? Or is it you? Or is it you? Now, Barna Research um, uh, recently did, found, uh, just did some research on content and teaching content. And they found that for a typical young person, uh, typically, a young person is exposed to 3,000 hours of formative content a year. And in that same period, in that same year, only 150 hours of explicitly Christian content was communicated. Our young people more and more are being discipled by channels that perhaps we don't even understand. The question is, for all of us, who is teaching our young people? This is where we must get intentional. Thinking through how we raise up our young people in the context and the culture that we live in. John Tyson, a pastor in New York, uh, who's uh, written a book called The Intentional Father, which is fathering particularly to boys, says this, but you can hear it through the lens of either boys or girls. He says, may it be said that you were the one who gave your son the skills they needed and exposed him to other people who could teach him what he needed to learn. May his richest experiences be ones you curated and planned, 
not just random, traumatic events that lead to brokenness. Paul says, do not exasperate your children. Do, don't, do not frustrate them to anger, but train them, discipline them, instruct them, teach them. Find what? What's that final word? Of the Lord. Of the Lord. See, we all carry values. And we will teach and we will train and we will instruct out of the values that we carry. And so we need to reflect what are our values? What do we value most as a family? As a father, what do you value most? And this is a real challenge. I sit there and go, oh my goodness, I see in the devotion of my time and my focus and my energy and my thoughts where my values really lie. Now, is it money? Is it career? Is it status? Is it comfort? Is it wealth? Is it living a good life? Is it good behavior? Is it religion? And all these things that we focus on that we value most, and the reason why we need to audit our own hearts and figure out what our values are as they work their way out in our family is because that's where our family goes. See, our values lead to our mission. And I love this thought that the invitation as we train and teach, the instruction of the Lord is actually that we are inviting our families on mission on mission together. We are called to be a family on mission. Jefferson Bethke in his book, Take Back Your Family, says this, a family on mission embraces the truth that God wants them to work together as a team to accomplish what cannot be done alone. They know that they are a collective of strengths and wirings and giftings brought together to fulfill his mission on earth. I want to ask you, what's your mission? There is something really powerful when we understand that as a family, just like we are as a church, that we're on mission. That family isn't the mission. So often I think we get confused and we make family the mission. Don't make family your mission. You just make a whole bunch of individualists. A family that's located and centered on itself, but make family, part, bring family in on the mission. And this, this kind of evokes, when we ask the question, you know, uh, what's our mission as a family? What mission are we on? Then it actually invites a couple of questions, key questions. Firstly, what is your mission? Step back, be intentional. Well, what is the mission of our family? What do we value? What's most important? Step back and go, where do we want to go? What are we wanting to achieve? I know for Megan and I, we've, we need to do this and we keep reminding ourselves, Step back. Megan asked me a great question the other day. She said, Andrew, what's going to be the regret in the next five or ten, ten years pertaining to family if we don't make some steps now? And so often we get caught just in the mess of life that we don't step back and go, what is the mission that we're on? And then we make decisions based on what that mission is. Question one, what is your mission? Question two, what role does your child play? What role do your children play in the mission. See, when you ask that question, what's the role of our kids in this mission? It forces you firstly to ask, well, who is my kid? Who are my children? You're forced to understand them and think through, well, who are they? How have they been created? Because we know this, right? Every child is different. Every child is different. You're studying children, understanding their gifts, their abilities, their passions, their talents, asking the question, 
How do I understand who your kids are? And then once you understand your mission, you understand who they are, then you can begin to map what's their role in the mission. You begin to say, hey, hey, this is your part. As you bring your gifts to this family, this is how you can play your part in the family on mission. And third question, what are the steps and the disciplines that help us fulfill this mission? What do we need to do as a family? What do we need to do? What do we need to put in place? What are the practices? What are the places and spaces that we need to create in order that together as a family we can fulfill the mission that God has called us into? They're good questions. What is your mission as a family? What role does every person play in that mission? And what steps and disciplines do we need to put in place to fulfill the mission God has called us to? It's intentionality. As I said, there's a whole bunch of other people trying to intentionally disciple our kids. And they're putting mega bucks into it. We need to get intentional about how we form and shape our kids on mission for the Lord. I say this to myself and feel the weight of it greatly. One of the great ways we can do this too is tell stories. I said a couple of weeks ago in a message that actually the more that a child understands the story that they're part of in their family, the more secure they are in the world. Tell stories. Kids want to know the story that they're part of. It was, it was, because that's who we are, right? We make sense of the world through stories. Alistair McIntyre talks about this, that we are storytelling animals and we can't answer who am I until we can, under, until we can answer the question, well, what story am I part of? Invite your kids into the stories that they're part, you know, story. Jacob's birthday was last week. He turned six. And uh, one of our little practices is that, uh, with every birthday around the table, uh, we go around and we share just what we love about Jake and we tell some stories. Now, my memory, and I don't know if this is other blokes, but my memory is like a sieve. Like I just cannot remember anything. Are there any other men like that? And, it's, and, and Megan is an oracle. It's like, it's just, it's, it's unfair, but Me- Megan's got a memory like a still. So I can't win any arguments because I can't remember. Uh, I just plead the fifth. Um, so Megan, Megan then just begins just to tell story after story about Jacob's life. Thank you, sweetheart. I need to write it down. But here's the thing. Jacob just kept asking, tell me another story. Tell me that story how I learned how to ride my bike. Tell me that story about how I was born. And Megan's going, I don't want to tell you everything. But, you know, he, but he wanted it. I just, you know, one of the only stories I could remember, but this is key for him, is he ran through a glass panel. Literally, uh, and uh, he was so, I, 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 I shaped it as, mate, you were Superman. It was actually quite dangerous. We had to take him to the hospital. He got a big scar on his arm. I said, Jakey, show, show us your scar. This is your, this is your story. And he kind of lifted up. He said, yeah, that's my story. I did that when I was three years old. I dove through a glass panel and almost killed myself. But I've got the scar to prove it. Tell, you, tell the stories of, of, of tell stories. Your kids want to know the story that they're part of. It gives them a sense of security. It gives them a sense of meaning. Paul gives us classic wisdom for classic fathers. Do not exasperate your children, but train them and teach them in the Lord. And Paul finally says, 
we need more classic fathers. We need more classic fathers. See, here's the thing. Paul wasn't a dad. Paul wasn't married. He didn't have a wife. He had no biological children. But he was absolutely certain of his role as a father. He writes uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 these words. He says, I'm writing this. He writes to the church in Corinth. He says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love. I mean, does that sound like, have you heard that language before? God the Father saying to Jesus, this is my son whom I love. Paul then says, hey, your identity is in God. You need to walk in the way of God. Paul is saying, I am walking in my identity as a child of God. I have been called to walk in the pattern and the way of God the Father. I am taking on my fatherhood and I am loving my son, Timothy. My son, not my biological son. I'm a father to Timothy through the gospel. He is a son, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. And here we go. Timothy, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which, is, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the church. Paul is saying we need more fathers in the faith. We need more parents in the faith. We need men and women in the faith. But I say to our fathers today, I say to our men today, men, be fathers in the faith. Be fathers in the faith. Oh, there might be 10,000 guardians. There might be 10,000 people who have great advice. But we know with guardians, they come and go like the wind. They invest for a time and they may look after physical attributes, but they're not there for the long haul to invest in your spiritual journey. We need fathers, not guardians of the faith. Paul says, no, I'm not a biological father, but I am a father. I am a father. He says, we need more fathers. And then he sends Timothy and says, follow Timothy because Timothy is going to be your father. He's walked in my way. He has imitated me. And this is the punchline. This is the thing. This is the invitation for all of us. This is a challenge for all of us. Paul says, he says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. I urge you to imitate me. Can we say, as we look at our life, imitate me? We're not gonna be perfect. That's true. None of us are perfect. But there is something about when our hearts and our minds are walking in the way of God, 
walking in the truth of the gospel, that it's not about my effort or my striving, but it's all about what God says over me, that he's forgiven me, he's set me free. There is something about the gospel that invites us into a new place of vulnerability, that we can sit with other people and say, I'm not here to prove anything. I'm not here to, I'm not here to, to impress you in any way. I can train you, I can teach you because I have been changed. I've been changed by the Father. And as we walk in that way, as Paul walks in that way, that place of vulnerability that says, I, I'm free, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I'm the worst of all sinners, yet, yet I know whose I am and I'm walking in that way. You can follow me. You can follow me. Come and follow me. Imitate my way just as I imitate the Father. Here's the invitation for all of us. And I say to us men today, let's live a life like that. Let's live a life where we can say to the next generation, imitate me because my goodness, there is a generation and they sit here on Sunday night and they are desperately looking for spiritual fathers. They're desperately looking for people who can say, I am walking in the way of the Father, imitate me. There's so many guardians there's so many messages. We need spiritual fathers. We still need spiritual mothers to oversee, love, guide, and say, follow me. What an honor. honor. What a joy. It's, a, it's an invitation. Again, this is, and I want us to feel this today. If we're going to feel, oh my goodness, saying imitate me, that sound. It's just an invitation to walk in grace. To look out, look out to those in our, in our community, to look out at those in our family and say, I want you, I'm inviting you to come and walk with me. Paul did that with Timothy. He said, come and walk with me. What a joy. What a joy. It is a joy. It is a joy to, to, to live with that life and that hope and that purpose and that meaning. I reckon as God calls us more, we are, as a family, can I say this finally, as a family, we're on mission in the city of Brisbane. God has called us to love and care and serve the broken and the poor in the city. As we love Him, as we serve Him, as we imitate Him, I know that we will be a blessing, not just in this family, but to the city at large. Hey, I'm gonna get the band to come up. We're going to sing this morning a, uh, a classic song. Well, it's, it's actually not that old now. But as I think about all the songs about the Father, this is one that has just sat within, I think, the heart of the church over the last five years. And it's that simple song, Good, Good Father. And here's what I'd love us to do. We're going we're gonna to sing and worship. And as we sing, I just, I reckon this has been the word for this morning for, for us, certainly for me, is that maybe we need to get a fresh vision of who God is for us. Maybe you see God as that angry father, or maybe you see God through the lens of your own experiences and picture of father. And as we sing, good, good father, just grab hold of that truth afresh. God, our loving Father, is for us. He's for you. He loves you. 
He's with you. He sacrificed Himself for you. And He has a purpose for your life. Just begin to lift your eyes and say, God, change my heart. I receive your goodness and your grace. Come on, let's stand to our feet. Let's just begin to lift our eyes, lift our hearts, begin to sing, begin to worship. We love you, God. You're a good father. You're a good father. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and our locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.